Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. All right. Hey there, everybody. Thanks for coming back for another episode of AF Fireside. I'm super excited to have Andrew Getz and Matthew Mallon, the co-founders of Mallon and Getz, here with me today, uh, joining me from beautiful upstate New York, not too far from me in Massachusetts. How are you guys? We're great. Yeah, we're good. And looking forward to chatting with you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this as well. I've uh, been doing a ton of research on you guys. And I think one of the cool takeaways here is that for folks maybe that are, are listening or watching and just hearing of you guys for the first time, there's a pretty solid chance that as this interview goes on, they might have a sentiment that, oh, I actually, I have seen them before. I have seen this brand somewhere before, um, which is an awesome testament to, to your success and your growth. And I'm excited to learn more about the, uh, you know, the path, both conventional and non-conventional that you guys took to, to get to where you are. So let's, let's dive right in, um, speaking specifically to those people that are yet to, yet to discover, yet to learn about Mallon and Getz. Can we get a really high level overview on, on what the brand is? Yeah, sure. Uh, that, thanks for thanks for including. You, you can give the high level. I'll give the low level. Okay. <laughs> All right. The, the high level overview is uh, we started this business to get. So we're partners in uh, business, partners in life. We started this business together. Um, it'll be 17 years next month, or uh, in March, March 1st. Um, and the idea was to make skincare easy and uncomplicated at a time when. It wasn't. It was really complicated. There were many steps and it was it was difficult to navigate. And so there was this moment in time that we thought we could bring our respective worlds, Andrews of design and architecture with mine of beauty and marketing, beauty marketing um, together to to create a brand. Um, there were a lot of small, independent, family owned and operated uh, beauty businesses that had started up prior to us. They had been sold off to large corporations like Lauder and L'Oreal. And we really felt that there was this moment in time where we could sort of step in and pick up where they'd left off and do something that felt authentic and real, modern, um, and, uh, and and just fresh and different from, from everything else that was out there in the marketplace. And, and cool. not have a boss, which was also <laughs> sort of a lot of fun too. But. So, so the business started, um, I'll give you a little bit more insight. The business started with a freestanding store in our building in Chelsea, in Manhattan. Um, so it really was this idea of these neighborhood traditional apothecaries and how to make them um, modern. So we were the shopkeepers who lived above the shop. We opened up this store and we uh, ended up having wholesale distribution nationally at Barney's New York between the East and the West Coast and Liberty in London. So we had an international component as well. And we also had an e-com website 17 years ago when that was really not a big deal 
back then, um, which we're very happy that we started 17 years ago. And uh, and yeah, and here we are today. Yeah, and and there was really we really felt that um, there was a big void in the marketplace, uh, as Matthew sort of touched on. Um, having come from a very different world, Matthew is the beauty doyen. I came from this world of design, and I remember when Matthew had worked at one of his various other uh, beauty emporiums, and just being totally like intimidated and overwhelmed. And I was a guy who used a bar of Neutrogena to literally wash my face, my body, my hair, and shave. I was the very committed minimalist. And um, what Matthew taught me is that, you know, use a better product, get better results. But going to a department store or going to where he used to work, uh, Matthew worked at Kiehl's for a very long time, it was uh, totally overwhelming and intimidating, um, just from a product assortment, but also from a design perspective. It was Baroque. There was too many choices. And as the French always like to say, too much choice is no choice. And so we thought, what if we could sort of reinterpret that uh, in a more minimalist approach and uh, less is best? And that's what we got. Very cool. I, and I feel like you're speaking directly to me here. Maybe you tapped into my cell phone or something. We're in the middle of a heated, you know, heated debate at, in my house about how I'm able to use a bar of Dove soap on my face and have no no problem with it. So that's very cool that you you can be fixed from that. <laughs> so I'm excited yeah. to learn what might be best for me better than that. Uh, bar we, of soap we, on no, my we face. can definitely help you out with that. No problem. <laughs> well, and that's awesome. there there you know we we've often talked to our customers directly in our store when we when we were working there ourselves, and you know there is a if it's not broke don't fix it mentality so you know if something's working and you feel really good and confident about yourself with it then maybe it's okay um, there is opportunity to ma always make things better and if you're starting to feel you know one of the first things i always ask somebody when they come into one of our stores is um, do you love your facial cleanser now if you if you love your bar of soap then you're probably okay if you don't or you hesitate for any reason then there might be an opportunity to have a conversation. Or ignorance is bliss. Because um, I think there's always, no matter who you are, or what you do, there's always room for improvement. Um, right. But sometimes you just don't know. I mean, I would be the classic uh, example of, I just didn't know. Um, mm -hmm. Now I know. But also, you know, Andrew, when I met Andrew, he was a health enthusiast. Like no one had ever met. He had like zero body fat. He ate like very regimentally. Um, and there's a, there's a real science to that. And, and if you live your life a certain way and you take care of yourself, you're going to be healthier, longer, all these other things that go along with that. And taking care of your skin is exactly the same thing. What we find having a skincare business is that people wait until they're 40 or 50 years old to take care of their skin. And then they want a quick fix, which as you add more products to fix things, you're adding irritations and complications to the whole process. Whereas if you zero back to the real basics of a great cleanser and a great moisturizer and doing it every day, twice a day, you kind of put, you set yourself up for success where maybe you don't have to have all those other things and all those other products that are creating the problem in the first place. And you're just able to look good and feel good and be healthy and do the right thing. Totally. So how do you think that, that this, this guiding principle, how does that translate? You know, we have it on the skincare side. How does that translate to the design? Because I know that design is really a core integral part. To you know, obviously a really important component to us both personally, but also from a, 
our business perspective. And the one thing I always learned, the mantra in design, which I think was by Dieter Robbins, um, was good design is good business. And of course, there's lots of different interpretations. It's very subjective what people think is good and what uh, is not good. But from our perspective, we wanted to create this concept of transparency meaning that all the information was right on the bottle, it wasn't hidden, it was easy to read. Even the, the way it was um, put on the, on the bottles, there were these different gradations. One were the directions, one were the caution, one were the ingredients. So once you knew our products, um, you understood where to look for for particular information. And everything also was color coded. So face was blue, body was green, hair was red, so that if you're in the shower and you got soap in your eyes, you can, you can see which product you were looking for. So we love this idea of creating um, a system for our products. And what was reflected on the outside was even more reflected on the inside. So the design was a way for us to advertise the efficacy and quality of what we were putting in the bottles. So design also wasn't a big deal 17 years ago, in fact, or it, it was a big deal. It was very elaborate. So if you think of like traditional Estee Lauder or L'Oreal brands, that's pretty much what proliferated the marketplace at the time. So no one was doing anything minimal or very pared back and just very direct and honest, as Andrew said. But in addition to all of that, as you start to talk about simplicity and bringing things back to what's needed and necessary on a daily basis, like an apothecary 100 years ago would have done or like your grandparents would have taken care of themselves, we started thinking about the overload of, pro so when Andrew met me, um, I had um, left my first job, which brought me to New York City out of college to start my second job, which was a beauty buyer at Barney's New York. And when you're a beauty buyer for a large major national company, you have every single product available to you that ever existed and more than you can imagine what you could do ever, ever do with. I also have a real skin sensitivity. I'm, uh, I have rosacea, I have eczema, I have seborrhea, and I have fragrance allergies. So as a beauty buyer, there wasn't a lot that I could use. I would bring all these things home. Andrew was trying them out. He was upgrading from maybe a bar of soap to something else. And as we started to get to know one another and spend more time together, we ended up moving in together. And what happens when you live two people in an apartment in New York City? You don't have a lot of space. So, and it doesn't matter pretty much how much money you have, for the most part, you live in a cramped, small New York City apartment. Design's really important to us. We're working for fashion companies and design companies, and the, this is how we live our lives. These are the things that are important to us. Um, and so with a small, tiny New York City bathroom, we wanted something that we could both share that could sit out and always look good because we didn't have the space otherwise, and we didn't want to have two cleansers and both of them be ugly, what if we could have one that we could both share and use regardless of our skin types and have it always look good on the shelf? And so all of these sort of ideas started to percolate into what we are today. And it's very, very cool. different to have our soap in half. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so on the design front, how has, how has the design evolved as the last 17 years have gone on? Not much. Not, yeah, I think we've we've I think yeah. that's part of the success of the brand is that we've stayed true to who we are throughout the the trajectory. Um, matter of fact, the one thing that had changed very sort of early on is that we introduced um, a second color to the printing of the bottle, and then 
we went back to the original monochromatic colors of each bottle, which was the original purity. And we're so glad that we did that. So, you know, we've, we've experimented, we've, you know, you have to be able to flex a little bit, um, but ultimately we always come back to the original concept. The one thing that does change um, often or every time we build a store is that no two stores are alike. So we use a different uh, design for each uh, store that we build so that you're shopping, you're not in this like McMallon and Getz environment where everything's the same. And I think that's particularly important now as we hopefully come out of COVID and people return to the joy of shopping on the main street or um, in cities and everything that it'll be really invigorating to see like, oh, this space is different from the one in Uptown or Downtown or Los Angeles or London or Hong Kong. And I think that, that design and create some passion for the brand. Also, um, most great design or, or probably a lot of great modern design today comes from some root of, of some sort. So some traditional design element that we all sort of covet. And when we started the idea of Malangetz 18 plus years ago, um, we reached out to Two by Four, who Andrew had known through his work with Vitra um, a, a design, an industrial design firm, a graphic, and, design. Gra graphic design firm, excuse me. And um, we had we had said to them that as a new business, a new skincare business with a modern design, it has to be rooted in something. We have to be able to talk to people in a way that they're going to understand. And there are these traditional apothecaries. That's how people have shopped throughout history. These are the things that resonate with us. And in fact, if we look at those bottles, 100, 200 years ago, they're so beautiful, we covet them to sit in our homes empty. And what if we could recreate that? So 100 years from now, somebody looked at a Malin and Getz bottle and said, I just think it's cool and I want to have it on my shelf. And that was really the beginning of the design brief for the product and what it was going to look like. So we were taking this traditional apothecary concept and making it modern and that it could become this classic, this icon of some sort that wouldn't change. It would be the staple of something that sort of always lived there and that you relied on and you depended on and really felt um, solid and comfortable in your routine. Yeah, no, I think, you know, the idea of creating a, a sort of iconic modern classic based on something traditional has been a, a mantra throughout uh, the whole trajectory of Malin and Getz. And, it, it happens with our stores. You know, we looked at it in the traditional apothecary. How can we modernize it? We did it with our bottles. We went to a traditional apothecary bottle, glass bottle and made it really modern and contemporary. But it also, uh, with the concept of the brand, um, we looked at old apothecaries and how things were formulated back 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, there were, weren't women's products and men's products. You went to the your pharmacist or your, your apothecary and said, I have this problem. And they created a formula for you and you could use it whether you're a man or a woman. It really, it's a 20th century, a mid 20th century phenomenon of creating these segregation between women and men. And so I love that we've gone back to the past for the future. Very cool. And chances are in those olden days, you walked away with a bottle of something that you'd probably go to jail for now, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Possible. Time change. Spoken <laughs> to the guys who produce a cannabis candle. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely saw it. So let's just dive into that product for a second there. What, what is, what's up with the cannabis candle <laughs> that, that stood out to me? 
Um, well, what's up with it? It's well, it's a highfalutin. It, it, yeah, there, there's a sort of a long trajectory. We launched our business as a skincare business with base products, body products, and scalp and hair products. Um, early on, we had, had been at a speaking engagement, and uh, it was an industry event of which the, the president of a perfume company approached us afterwards and said, I'd love to translate your idea into perfume. And we're like, we're a skincare business and we don't use synthetic perfumes in any of our products. He was like, yeah, think about pitching that idea to a perfumer. And we were like, okay. And we did. Um, and we still work with the same perfume house for all these years, which is a, a family run multi-billion dollar business. Um, in the, within the creating of the sense, there's always been this sensibility about going back to the roots of apothecary. So these medicinal concepts and ideas about people have always used product. Um, cannabis is certainly one of them. And uh, we reinterpreted that from a purely conceptual idea, from a fragrance idea of what cannabis would smell like if you wanted to wear it or since you're home with it. And it was really sort of starting with this old world perfumery apothecary idea of what the ingredients were and then conceptualizing that into something beautiful and fragrant and, uh, and meaningful in an entirely different way. Yeah, I think um, when you look at skincare, um, it's very serious subject and everything is sort of rather clinical. But when you enter the world of fragrance, it's, um, you're, it's a completely different environment. It, it's creative, it's poetic, it's musical. And most of all, it's uh, fragrance evokes memory. And so if you think of something Proustian, the next thing you know, you're dipping your Madeleine into your tea and you're remembering five volumes of your childhood. But the, the thing with cannabis is that having lived in Amsterdam for a long time, and I remember always riding my bike around the, the Jordan or something in all the coffee shops, people would be smoking. And so when we developed this, this was sort of an homage like to this incredible memory of a wonderful time in my life. Also, wow. Um, the idea of adding fragrance to our line, which happened probably by year two, um, was, was really something that we thought about quite strategically. So I have fragrance allergies um, and, and a pretty sensitive skin conditions of sorts. And so adding fragrance for us was this idea of pure design and pleasure um, in, a, in a business that is otherwise about treatments. And so how do you sort of juxtapose that in terms of balancing this business so that there are these fragrances and these candles on one side that really are just about perfume and aesthetics and all these wonderful things versus then these skincare products that are unscented and very specific about their treatments. And so if you walk into one of our stores, what if we're doing, if we're merchandising them well and we're telling our story well, the idea is, is that one side of the store would be a perfumery and the other side of the store would be an apothecary. And somehow we're overlapping and creating this world of malignants around that. Right. And, then, and there was also the uh, added benefit is that because we don't use any artificial fragrance in any of our skincare, mm -hmm. um, we believe that your skincare should not be, you should not be a human diffuser, whether you're allergic or sensitive or not, because even if you don't have sensitivities and your skincare is highly fragrant, what if you choose to use a fragrance? Then it's competing. So it gives you the option to use or to not use a fragrance unimpeded. Um, conversely, if you uh, have a fragrance, you know, then you're 
illuminating it or wearing it um, to your own desire. Yeah. So adding fragrance and candles to our to our brand has really been a help in promoting the overall brand in so many ways. In addition to then talking about skincare as being unscented for a very specific reason versus then these fragrances and candles, which are purely about perfume. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So let's go back to that moment where you partnered up with the perfumer, right? And, and yeah. you guys look like you have a really great ability to identify opportunity. Um, so from the perspective of, of a, a brand founder, right? Or someone that's at the, at the helm of a, a brand ship, how do you identify a smart partnership or you know business partner versus one that that isn't? Yeah, I, sometimes I think opportunity finds us more than we find opportunity. I think what we are we're very good editors, and that we when something's presented to us, we we are able to evaluate whether it's a good one or a bad one. And I um, I have this mantra or this saying that like. Everyone is given the same amount of good luck and bad luck in life. It's really a matter of how do you utilize that so that if something terrible happens, how do you get out of it as quickly as possible or learn from it, which is the most important thing. And if something good happens, that you don't waste the opportunity. So I think we've been relatively good at identifying good opportunities and learning how to say no uh, emphatically and yes uh, when we have to. And um, I think that's been, we've been really good at that. Uh, yeah. I, I, but we've I, had our, our failures. I would probably add that we also come from a place of a certain level of experience within our respected industries of design and beauty, um, where probably 10 years before starting this business, that's what we did. We were in the beauty world, we were in the design world. So we had had some, um, some knowledge of things that worked and things that didn't work. We didn't go to, you know, we didn't come out of MBA school and just say, okay, we were going to start a business and we were going to raise money for this. It was a self-funded opportunity for us to extend our careers to the next level. And in doing so, I think that that, you know, perhaps we brought some level of experience, which, which was able then to help us discern whether something was right or wrong for the business. Also, when it's your money that's on the line and you don't have a lot of it, by the way, you think things through and you talk things through and, um, and you make sure you're not making bad decisions. We've made wrong decisions. I can't say that any of them were bad. Um, you know, we, we learned from them really quickly and we moved on. Yeah. I mean, I think we're intuitive to an extent and then um, we don't beat ourselves up if something goes off the rails. We are obviously not happy about it, but the most important thing is that we do dust off our trousers and we learn from it so that we don't make the same mistake more than once. Also that experience really um, took into account having worked for small, well, in some cases not small, but having worked for family owned and operated specialty luxury businesses. So we'd seen family members making decisions within their businesses, mostly successful decisions, not always, or sometimes regretful decisions if they've sold their business, for instance. Um, and, you know, it really does help you as like the family behind the business or the two entrepreneurs that are behind the business understand how to navigate some of the things that are potentially coming to you and, and the possible partnerships um, that are in front of you. And one of the things that I can tell you, I've heard over and over and over again from any entrepreneur that is in this sort of situation, that is sort of a small niche 
luxury family run businesses, you have to stay focused. And it's one of the hardest things to do. And if you can remind yourself of that all the time, it does bring you back and really help to realign what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really solid little tidbit of advice there. I think, especially after the last year that we've gone through, we have, we're probably looking at a lot of people that are maybe sitting in their couches or in their cars or talking to their, their spouse or their partner and thinking, you know, it's time to jump off and, you know, try to make a living or try to make a side hustle out of X, Y, or Z. Right. And you guys bring up a very interesting point and, and, you know, 17, 17 years ago, right. You guys made this decision to self fund the venture. Now that you're on, on, not, I want to say the other side, but 17 years later, what advice would you give either your, yourself in, in those shoes or the people that are inevitably in those shoes right now that are about to make that jumping off on their, their own. I'll, I'll offer my perspective, which is more of a continuation of what I just said. And that is that when you have this experience of, uh, of, of work, you know, for, for a certain number of businesses for which we both worked, I had worked for three before this business and Andrew won um, for 10 years uh, that were family run businesses. He worked for a second generation family run business. I worked for three third generation or yeah, three third generation family run businesses, um, all successful. And when you have those levels of experience behind you, you, you do feel a level of confidence in terms of like how to move forward. And that that's taught us something um, in terms of it being self-funded. I don't think we would have thought about it in any other way. Um, Andrew's family is much more entrepreneurial than mine. All his family members all have their own business or have at one point um, have had success. You know, my dad worked in the same job for 45 years or whatever. And when we were starting this whole endeavor, I remember going to my parents and saying, well, Andrew and I are thinking about this. And, you know, my, my mom and dad were on the other end of the phone there. They were in Michigan. They're like, have you thought it through? What if it doesn't work out? Do you have enough money? How are you going to live? Can you get another job? You know, ask me like a hundred questions. And then, uh, like two weeks later, we were having dinner with Andrew's parents. We were like, so we have this idea. We might start this business. And they're like, great. And then they changed the subject. Like, like that was it. And yeah. I was just like, that's all? <laughs> they're like, you should do it. You know, you, you, you can't hit a home run unless you swing. And so I think there's, the, yes, it's very, very intimidating and very, very nerve wracking. But I think you should do what you know and do what you love. And if you have passion about something and you do your research and you're uh, educated about it, Yes, it's a big step, but I think that passion and enthusiasm uh, and a good business plan will take you very, very far. But, but I guess my point to all of this was that we wouldn't have considered not self-funding at that point. Like that was the only option that we had. Like this was an extension of our careers and we wanted to be in charge of our own destiny at that moment. So for us and for anyone that I was giving advice to in this kind of circumstance, I would say it is a, truly a, one of the best possible things that you can do if you feel confident about the experience that you're bringing to the table. I mean, I, I have to say that I, having not been an entrepreneur and taking a leap of faith finally with Andrew, um, I, you know, I was, I was scared and uh, fear drove me to want to succeed every single day. Like I couldn't afford to give up my entire career and my income and not and be a failure. Like how would I even go back to my industry at that point? And we're giving up incomes that we had worked really hard to get over the past 10 years. So 
I, there just wasn't a choice. Like we were going to, we were going to self fund this and we were going to make it work somehow. And you worked very, very hard to, to make it a success. So it, if, if you're, it's not for everyone. I think it's, you have to be very, very committed and to make a lot of sacrifices, but those sacrifices are, are, are actually not so great because the, the joy and the success is incredible. Um, but again, it, it has to be right for the right person. You know, so, sometimes people just like security. You know, I go into the office every day at a certain, well, used to go into the office every day at a certain time. And, you know, you, you take a paycheck home and maybe you're passionate about what you do, but the risk factor is, is minimal. Um, when you have your own business, every day is a, is a risk. One thing about being a business owner in New York City, though, is it does connect you with so many other business owners in New York City. Um, and there's just an endless number of smart people doing really interesting, smart things all the time, you know, much bigger and better than what we could ever imagine. And you do hear how they put together their businesses, you know, like everyone wants to share the stories, good and bad and compare notes. And when you hear like these young people who have come out of business school and they are um, raising, you know, they're, they're looking to raise money or, or to fund this in a particular way with a business plan in mind to do so. Uh, it's inspirational. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I would ever have been in that place, but I, I'm fascinated by it. And certainly there's plenty of success out there from doing it that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the other thing is, um, well, it's always nice to have, be well-funded and have a lot of capital. Sometimes that cushion um, makes you, I don't want to say lazy, but it gives you a sense of security that maybe you're not going the extra mile. I think the great thing about operating on very, very uh, tight shoestring is that it breeds creativity and right. creativity breed, breeds ideas and success and in a way that money could never and you possibly can't, buy. You can't afford to make mistakes either. And when you're using somebody else's money, Sometimes you take liberties and you can make a mistake, but when it's yours and this is all you have, like you right. think really long and hard about the decisions you're making or the collaborations that you're going to take on or, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's, it's like wine, you know, the, the best wine grows in the most adverse conditions, you know, the soil's too rocky, it's too dry or too wet, um, but you produce the, the greatest fruit um, and you sort of need that tension to create that great fruit. That's right. Very cool. Matthew, a question for you going back to, you know, the onset of, of starting the brand and having the conversation with your family and, and then the conversation with Andrew's family, right? Was there, was there a point where the fear went away or the fear subsided by such a large margin that you felt like you were now on the other side of that threshold? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's gotten better recently, but then there are new levels of stress that come into mm -hmm. the business as it gets larger. Um, I, I would say that for the first 10 years of the business, we really were always on edge that we weren't going to make it. And from day one, so so. By the way, we had we, we did write a business plan, and uh, I spent um, a good portion of a year before we started our business writing a business plan at the recommendation of several much smarter friends than ours, and one in particular, one mentor friend of ours, um, who had a brilliant business plan that um, we used as a guide. Um, so we did that, and then you know you have a little money, and you start this business, and you're working. I mean, we were working twenty four seven. Um, 365 for at least five years. It was constant. 
I mean, I remember the first time where we actually had a break. It was around year five and we were on a plane um, to Asia for work. And it was the first time we'd had like 12 hours of doing nothing. And you kind of go into a coma and we looked at each other and we were like, this isn't normal. We can't, you know, we can't live like this. Like we need to have a day off. Mm -hmm. And, and so then, you know, you realign and you reassess, et cetera. Um, but then it just puts more pressure on you to have to succeed that much more because now you're not doing anything for a day. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a little bit of a battle. I, I would say um, one, one of the nice things that I can say of all of this and maybe working twice as hard to ensure that things were going to be successful is that we were profitable in our first year. So we were really lucky that we um, had a great plan in place and we were working really hard and we could see some fruits of our labor, which, you know, that momentum sort of builds on itself. So like by year two, it was a little bit better. And by year three, it was, you know, we, we weren't paying ourselves a salary until I think the third year, but we, but we were profitable and we were living off of savings and we were making sure that there was health behind this so that we could feel really confident by like year three to pay ourselves a tiny salary and by year four, a little bit more respectable. And maybe by year five, we actually were like, not back to where we had been, but you know, we, we were getting by with, with the business. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit like a really good complex novel. Every chapter builds on the chapter before and it's more, gets more and more complex as you go down the road. And um, so it's not that it's easier at the beginning or easier at, uh, after 17 years, it's just different different sort of problems, different sort of headaches. Um, yeah, the, the first 10 years, first 10 years was about branding. People didn't know who we were. So it was just like, how do we get them to know what this brand is and who we are and then to purchase it? You know, the, the last six or seven years is, uh, has been about building upon that knowledge and, and the awareness and really feeding into it because we've, you know, we've done some, a few things right. And luckily, um, there is exposure to the point where now we can try to scale. Yeah, I think we, we've built a really, I mean, we're still quite small and niche, which is great. Um, but we've built a really strong foundation. So now that we've got that in place, it's really about building a house on top of it. But scaling is an entirely different skill set that is not our expertise, by the way. And all of a sudden, when you go from, you know, we, in year 12 maybe to having i don't know we probably had globally 50 or 60 employees to like by year 14 with 150 employees like all of a sudden you're managing people and you're managing like you know scalability in other countries and setting up distribution centers outside of the united states and you know the not not things that are that we're experts at for sure right that takes you takes you out of that little New York City apartment bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a totally different experience. And it's scary. It's scary if you don't know how to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let's go back to physical stores. Uh, we talked earlier about some of the strategies that you used, you know, making each of the stores different. How has brick and mortar played a role in your success? It's it's played a really, really important role. To to be somewhat a little bit crude, but you know, it, maybe it's a good um, Metaphor is that in order to win the war, you need the Army, the Air Force, Marines, and the Navy. And I think when you're uh, creating a brand, for us, we realized it was really important to have luxury department stores like Barney's and retailers 
Um, obviously e-commerce, and of course the third and maybe one of the most important components was our own brick and mortar. So in order to be successful, you had to have your brand accessible in all those different channels, but the experience at our store, <clears throat> pardon me, was um, probably the most important because it was the most intimate. It was where you really touched the customer and you could really have a point of difference uh, in the environment. So we love our stores and um, we're, we never had this idea of uh, carpet bombing, having a million stores in every city. The idea is to have a, a few strategic neighborhood stores in uh, certain cities which we've been doing and we believe there's room for more, but we don't have to be McDonald's. We don't have to be everywhere. Right. And um, having each store be unique and special just really created a very special um, rapport with the customer. It was, it was, as we both mentioned, it was really one of the very first considerations that we had when we started thinking about the business and a business plan and putting something together. So, uh, very similar to this sort of like rooted in history concept of ours. Um, if you were shopping for what we do, beauty products, treatment products, whatever they were, um, apothecary, pharmaceutical, um, you would have gone to a neighborhood shop. And there would have been this singular environment where Malin and Getz would have hung their name up above the door and you would have met them and you would have said my scalp pitches and one of us would have gone to the map, the back, we would have mixed something up for you. And we would put a label on it and we would have handed it to you. And you wouldn't, didn't matter if you're a man or a woman, it worked. When you need more, you came back for it. So this idea of service, this idea of intimacy, neighborhood, um, of a world that is surrounding your brand and these products and what you're trying to offer, it became sort of the touch point of everything that we were going to do. And we also knew, and we had the vision um, similarly to some of our uh, some of the businesses for which we had worked, that there was a whole world out there that could experience this, and there was an opportunity. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna be in beauty, it's it's somewhat of a volume game. So you have to do enough product manufacturing to get economy of scale to keep your products at a price that are affordable in your marketplace. And to do that, you have to be able to scale it to some degree. So one store is really this wonderful niche sort of luxury version of who we are and what we're about. But how do you take that out across the world in some way? And with that vision in mind, what does brick and mortar look like? So as Andrew said, it doesn't have to be McDonald's. We don't have to have a Sephora on every corner or Starbucks on every block. Um, the idea is, is that you could have strategically a store to communicate your vision within an important marketplace where people can actually come to you and experience what I just described and have it feel really special and really wonderful. And yet, if that's not convenient, there are all these other opportunities around it, which could be a Nordstrom's or a website or a small retailer in Denver, Colorado, that is your favorite place to go, whatever, you know, whatever it happens to be. I think people shop for different reasons at different times. You know, obviously we're all shopping now for convenience. So we're all buying everything uh, online. But I don't think that replaces um, the, the experience of walking into a store and having someone answer all your questions right there, be able to kick the tires and test things. I, I think those things inspire. Those, that's the human aspect. Otherwise, everything's just transactional. And going back to the fear thing. So one of the things <laughs> a brick and mortar store is that, uh, and, and this actually has just come up recently. So 
it makes you dependent on yourself all of a sudden. So if you're the retailer of the product you manufacture, you don't have to worry that a, that a retailer is not going to do right by you or isn't going to be around. And this has happened in several instances where, you know, retailers, if they allow you space in their store, they want to dictate how your brand is going to look in that store. That in some ways is okay if it provides the service and the convenience to the customer and we're still able to tell our story directly from our own location. In the other instance, however, if a retailer fails, like Barney's New York, for instance, which was one of our most important national retailers here in the United States, we still have our own store's volume to fall back on, which by the way, we did more out of our own original store in Chelsea in New York City than almost all of Barney's combined. So all the Barney's locations combined. It was our single biggest, it remains one of our single biggest points of distribution in the entire world. So having that as sort of a, a backbone of where we are, it makes brick and mortar highly significant and, and lucrative ultimately. I think that's actually the reason Barney's failed was because we, <laughs> we're not selling enough products. Yeah, there you go, that, that's probably <laughs> it. <Sorry. laughs> Heard it here first. Great guys. Well, I want to end with with one last thought. Again, kind of zooming out, really big picture, uh, and and almost going back to the beginning of things. Right? Um, how long had you guys considered starting the business? And it sounds sounds like you may have imagined that it was always going to be as you know partners in life, partners in business. Did you have strategies from the get go to make sure that that worked? And Matthew's strategy was to not do it, <clears throat> and my strategy was to do it. So. Um, we talked about it for a couple of years. Matthew wasn't quite ready and I was really roaring to go. Um, but I think finally I was persuasive enough and enough things had happened in our lives that Matthew was willing to take the risk. And uh, it was a two year conversation and then another 18 months. Then we decided we would do it. And then it was an 18 month process of I, I left my job. I started writing a business plan. Andrew was working, bringing home an income. Um, and we started to implement the business over, over that 18 month period of time. And then I started the business. Andrew left his job six months after the business began. Okay. So it was really like a four year process in total two of just getting over the finish line to do it. And about a year and a half to two, depending, um, where we actually are both working in the business that we created. Mm -hmm. And how have you, how have you learned to balance personal and professional lives? I think we were the original, uh, social distancing couple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, know, we, you guys we had the term. It's been nothing for us. We, we, we understood how to do that. No, I mean, you really needed, uh, everyone needs their own space. Um, so I think what we learned early on, um, we were all consumed by the business as Matthew mentioned for five years. We, that's all we did. And we realized that was not sustainable. And so we realized that we had to carve out uh, not only personal and individual time, but we needed to get away from the business a little bit. So I think actually one of the smartest things we ever did um, when we were able to have enough funds, we bought a little farmhouse in upstate New York and physically removed ourselves from the Isle of Manhattan and that changed our perspective on everything. Because I think we weren't disciplined enough on weekends not to check in on the store 18 times a day and do that. But by physically 
getting away, it gave us an entirely new perspective on our business and, and our lives. And we also, um, from the get-go, we really brought very different skill sets. Um, we're, we're pretty opposite, and you know, I, I guess opposites attract sort of situation, but um, Andrew's much more creative. He, um, he comes from the design world, uh, and because beauty wasn't his world, he picked up the slack with things that I wasn't good at and just took them and ran with them and made them his own. Whereas there were just things that were easy for me to do, like sales and marketing and beauty. You know, I knew the retailers, I knew the beauty editors. So all these things sort of came natural and it was up to me to sort of you know, manage that in the beginning as Andrew was getting his feet wet. And then Andrew picked up manufacturing, he picked up um, design, um, uh, when we developed an amenity program, um, he really sort of like took it and made it his own. And it is one of the biggest pieces of our business today. So there are just real divide and conquer sort of situations that happened organically. And, and luckily for us, because they created a real division in terms of like, okay, you're over here and I'm over here and we're kind of doing these things together and then deciding on like the major things when, when they would come up. Mm -hmm. So you guys managed to create some kind of an atmosphere where there was still like a coming home at the end of the day. Sort of, sort of. I mean, I think if you're an entrepreneur and you you have your own business, you know, you you never really ever leave the office. Um, and that's a good thing and a bad thing, depending. Um, but yeah, we, we've, we've figured out in different ways. I mean, it's almost 30 years for the two of us together personally. So you know, we figured out ways to, to make it work. I mean, if you're going to be in a relationship, you, you know, it is about compromise and you do figure out how to, how to give and take. Yeah. I think, I think in the beginning we had uh, the advantage of being together all the time so that we could discuss problems all the time. But then after a certain point, that's no longer productive, mm -hmm. it's no longer healthy. So removing yourself and taking a breather is critical. Um, it's not easy to do because uh, you have this bloody phone that's always telling you you have to do something. So learning to say, you know what, no phones at dinner, put it away, and having time to ourselves and yourself are, are really, really important because there's never enough time in the day. Right. Whether you have your own business or not, there's always another email to answer. But you know what, the world will t continue to spin around the sun if you don't answer that email that minute. And learning to have, put some distance between you and your phone and your business is so much, uh, it makes you sharper and much a healthier and happier person. Phones away at dinner, new rule. Gone. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. Uh, I think something, something to learn for everyone from this conversation. And if nothing else, that there's always more to learn, right? Yes. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, and, thank and you guys. Other, other soap besides Dove. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that's true. Where is the best place to stay in touch? Where can listeners and followers learn more about Malin and Getz? Uh, certainly www.malinandgetz.com. Uh, um, and I know that we have um, Instagram and Malin and Getz via Instagram, uh, Malin and Andgetz.com. Um, yeah, all the all the basics. Or pop into one of our stores. We have uh, four in Manhattan. Uh, two in Los Angeles, one in San Francisco, Hong Kong, London. Um, so we're around. Perfect. So that's somewhere for everyone. No. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you guys again. Uh, look forward to meeting in person someday soon and, and keep up Likewise. the good work. 
Thanks Thank a lot. you. Thanks Bye. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is Fireside by American Field. Learn more and check out all of our featured brands at fireside.shopaf.co. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.